Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. In February 2017, we sat down with Al Barnes, the Virginia National Guard command historian and author of the book To Hell with the Kaiser. In this interview, we talked about his latest research into the many foreign-born doughboys that served in the United States Army during World War I. Today we are here with Al Barnes, Virginia National Guard command historian, author of To Hell with the Kaiser, and author of the upcoming book, Many Roads Traveled, America's Foreign-Born Doughboys. How did you get involved in this latest topic? I kind of backed into this topic because, as you mentioned, I wrote a book called To Hell with the Kaiser, and that was about the story of how America's army was being trained in 1917 and 1918 to go to France. And at every camp that I studied, uh, there was information about these immigrants and foreign-born soldiers needing language training and all of a sudden showing up and nobody could speak their language. And it was interesting enough that, that I actually had a whole chapter talking about these foreign-born soldiers. Well, after the book came out, everybody that contacted me about the book, none of them were interested in talking about Camp Lee or Camp Meade or Camp Dix or, or any of the other training camps. Everybody wanted to talk about the immigrants. And I started to realize that this was a much bigger story than I knew going in. One of the first things that came out was the fact that of the 4 million men that served in the Army in, in 1917, 18, and 19, 800,000 of them were born in another country. And to make it more interesting, as I was talking to people, I realized that there was one of these guys in just about everybody's family that I talked to. One of my friends who wrote a book called A Day of Perfect Hell about the Muse Argonne had said, gee, why didn't you include my grandfather? He was a, he was Italian. I said, well, Pete, here's your challenge, and why don't the two of us get together and we'll write a book about the foreign-born doughboys? And so that's how we got into this. Now, you'll note that we didn't use the word immigrant because a lot of these guys were not planning on becoming American citizens. In the early 19th, early 20th century, a lot of guys came to the States to work and then would go back home after they'd made their money. This was this was perfectly normal and perfectly acceptable. When they entered the country, they you had to fill out a form saying, do you wish to become an American citizen or not? And if they said, no, I'm just coming here to work and I'm going home, that was fine. They were considered a, a non-declarant immigrant. If a guy said, you know, I think I might like to become an American citizen someday, they were considered declarant. Well, that, that was kind of a, an important point. They may not have realized it at the time, and it would come back later as, as part of the uh, Selective Service Act. Well, you bring us to one of our big questions here. Woodrow Wilson signed into law the selective draft provision of the Army War Bill in May 1917. What impact did this have on the U.S. Army? And once the draft went into effect, who was registering? The American Army and National Guard was only, only had 200,000 men when war was declared. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was a strong believer that this was going to be a crusade for America to, to show the rest of the world how things should be done. And he believed strongly that the Army should reflect all of American society. He wanted everybody to play a part in his crusade. So they developed the Selective Service Act, which, as you said, was signed. And the first draft was for men, all men between 21 and 31 had to register for the draft. 
Well, think about it. That's a, that's a lot of guys. And eventually, in that one-month period where they signed everybody up for the draft, over 10 million men registered. Now, it's important that, to realize that not all these men were going to serve in the Army for, for many reasons. Uh, first of all, you had to be either physically able to serve, so that was one condition of being drafted, and the other was there were different categories that you could fall into, whether you were eligible for immediate service, you might have to be delayed a while because you had young children in the family and nobody else to take care of them. If you were caring for your elderly parents and were the only source of support for them, if you were in a critical war, uh, war-related war industry, if you were a policeman, if you were a pilot, if you were already in the military service, or if you were an alien, meaning somebody that wasn't actually born in this country, those were, were the categories that you could fit into. Now, it's that last group that, that I found so interesting because there were Inside this idea of aliens living in America, there, there were four different groups. There were the declarant guys who we talked about earlier. There were men that were in the diplomatic services of other countries, so they weren't eligible to be drafted either. There were some that had not declared, so that was a third category. And the fourth category was if you were from an enemy country. Now, at the time, the enemy countries were Germany, Bulgaria, Turkey, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So you got four categories. Guys that when they showed up here in 1910 said, yes, they would like to be a citizen, they're eligible to be drafted. Guys that said, no, I'm not sure I want to become a citizen, they weren't eligible to be drafted. But when they went to the draft board to register, they could exempt themselves. They could say, yes, I do wish to serve after all. And surprisingly, another category, the enemy alien category, there were many men in that category that also wanted to serve. So that led to, to a lot of guys from, from other countries registering and being available for the draft when it started. Really? So the Army was willing to accept potential soldiers from the Central Power Ab- countries? Absolutely. Uh, it was, uh, and surprisingly, there, there were already a large number of men from those countries serving. Remember, National Guard units were raised in local areas. In Pennsylvania and Ohio, for example, there were uh, National Guard units who were raised in coal mining country, and a lot of those guys were from the Austro-Hungarian Empire originally had come to this country and, and joined the National Guard before war even broke out because that was, you know, they, that was, they saw this as a way of proving their patriotism to their new country, even though they weren't even citizens yet. So this was, it was a challenge because there were many, many Germans, Austrians, and, and people from Turkey and Bulgaria living in this country and working. That's very interesting. What about the nationals of allied countries? They, they had a, a, a double-edged sword. Uh, they were offered the opportunity either to go home and, and serve in the, the army of their own country, or they could join the American army. It was, it was interesting in that there were so many Italian former soldiers living in this country that the army actually considered building regiments of Italian soldiers only using previous uh, men who had served as Italian officers and NCOs to lead those units. But in the end, they decided it was impractical because it would be too hard to, to mesh Italian army tactics with American army tactics. And so the, the men would just be drafted and sent to whatever unit they were was being drawn from that area. Uh, there was another group that they realized that perhaps uh, almost like a foreign legion, only it was called the Slavic Legion, and they were raising men who'd been born in Austro-Hungaria countries, in Montenegro, Serbia, Herzegovina, 
and that they would serve strictly on the front against their former countrymen in the hopes that they would bring more of their countrymen over to the American side. Fortunately, the war ended before that experiment was tried out, but it was, it was on the books as one of the, uh, the foreign units to be raised. In total, do we have an idea of how many foreign-born men registered for the draft? We do. Uh, let's go back to the draft. The first draft had 10 million men uh, register. It turned out that that wasn't nearly enough. Uh, surprisingly, you know, we think of guys of, of that period as being more robust and healthy and living outside and having a great diet and, and doing all these healthy things. Well, a lot of them were physically unfit and unable to, uh, to actually serve in the Army. And so it was decided to expand the age range from 21 to 31 to 18 to 45. And so now every man in this country from 18 to 45 had to be registered. And this led to 24 million men finally being registered for the draft. Now, of those 24 million, almost 2 million were foreign-born guys. So, so you've got this one-twelfth of the, of the guys being registered were, were actually born in another country. How many of them actually served in the war? Was it proportional to the numbers in which they... Actually, no. It was a higher percentage. It was determined that of the 2 million soldiers in France by the end of the war, 20% of them were born in a foreign country. Now, that's, you know, 20% is a lot. It, it, it actually comes down to, down to almost 400,000 men in France born in a different country. It also means of the 2 million guys being trained back here in the States, 400,000 more of them were foreign-born soldiers also. And uh, what, what makes those guys truly interesting is when you start realizing how widespread this was. Now, it, it's, it's not easy to say that the, this was always popular with the, with the other guys in the units because sometimes there were problems. They didn't understand English, a lot of them. They were, had to be taught numbers. Again, a lot of these guys couldn't read or write in their own languages, and, and so having to learn English the hard way under the command of a sergeant or a lieutenant who's trying to teach you how to shoot a rifle was a difficult job. The Army realized this and developed what they called development battalions, where they actually gave classes in English so that these guys could catch up with their fellow soldiers. Can you give us an idea of what countries these men came from? Absolutely. If you could name a country, I could... I could match you with guys from that country. For instance, every soldier who was drafted, who served in the military or in the Marine Corps or, or, or in the Navy was credited to a state and to a city or a county. This way, uh, the, the United States could figure out what Richmond, Virginia's contribution to the war effort was or what New York State's contribution to the war effort was. And this was important to the people at the time. So if you look at the records, all the Italian-born and Irish and Polish-born guys living in New York were credited to New York State. And fortunately, New York State has got their records digitized so that I could, when, I, when we were working on this book, Pete and I were able to figure out that, for instance, from New York State, there were 89 Australians, 10,214 Irish, 3,119 Polish, 92 from Argentina, 4 from Honduras, 16 from South Africa. 2,650 from Germany, 89 from Brazil, 11 from New Zealand, 5 from Iceland, 351 from Switzerland, and the big number, 33,000 from Italy. Now, what's also interesting, Pennsylvania did the same thing, and you could get these same kind of numbers, only Pennsylvania contributed 35,000 Italian-born men. 
Now, that's pretty significant. That's a lot of guys. And these are all guys that served, not guys that registered. These are guys who actually served in the military. And when you consider that an Army division of the time was only 28,000 men, New York State and Pennsylvania alone contributed two full divisions of Italians. It's, it's a pretty significant number. And again, to go back to one point that I'd made earlier, that, that there were already foreign-born guys serving in the military. After the war was over, the, the Army published its register of officers. And amongst the officers in the, in the Army, it turned out that 259 of them had actually been born in other countries. And now, for the most part, they were born in British Commonwealth countries, Canada, Scotland, England, Wales, Ireland. But there were 32 German-born officers and 11 Austrian-born officers serving in an army fighting those countries. So that's an, an interesting, uh, interesting figure. There were 16 from Russia, 12 from Sweden, 6 from Norway, 3 from Finland. And the highest-ranking foreign-born officer in the American army was a, an Irish guy who was a uh, general in the cavalry. So you could see that just about every country in the world contributed to, uh, to the American army. Were there men from parts of Asia or the Middle East? Represented yeah. as well? Yes, there were. And that's, you know, the, the American military and the, and the United States struggled with, with the idea of segregation versus integration during this period. And, and a lot of the, uh, and obviously, African-American men were in segregated units. Everybody knew that. They were, uh, there were certain cavalry and infantry units and pioneer infantry units that were totally segregated for African-Americans to serve in. What if you were a very dark-skinned Indian man from Bombay? Well, it depended on the clerk that registered you for the draft, because when, when they filled out the draft form, there were only two categories, white and colored. So a guy from Bombay, depending on what the clerk put in there, drove which direction he went to serve in. For instance, there was an uh, Indian guy named Raghunath Banawalkar living in New York City who was, uh, who was drafted, and he went to serve in, in the 77th Division and was one of the guys that helped rescue the lost battalion. There was another guy named, and here's an interesting name, Wally Mohammed, from, also from New York State. He joined the New York National Guard and actually served in, the, in France as a military policeman. Sam Hindu, another Indian guy, for some reason, was marked into the colored block, and he went and served in the 92nd Division with the, rest of, with the uh, African Americans. So a lot of where you went depended on, on what that clerk, and, and again, these were clerks that were brought into these draft boards with no more knowledge of the world than anybody else at the time. And they struggled. You could tell uh, when it came to Asian men, where does a Japanese guy fit on the level of white versus colored? Well, some clerks would actually make a separate block and, and put yellow or Asian or white. And, and so a lot of the, uh, the Japanese, Chinese, Korean men actually served in, in, the, uh, in the regular Army units. Uh, it's interesting when you go through the list of like the 59th Pioneer Infantry Regiment, which was a lot of upstate New York guys, a lot of Italian guys, and they're also joined by Yasuhiro Kasagi and Joseph Tamanaga. You know, those aren't the names you'd usually expect to see in an in a AEF unit in France. And there were also Yun Chen, Lai Tung, Wang Mingjin, Hang Hong, and Wang Fu. You know, so uh, a lot of this, a lot of where you went depended on how the clerk marked the box. Now, some, some of this is a little sadder than others because one of the guys, a guy named Taro Sahara, served honorably in France, 
But in World War II, ended up in an internment camp. So here you have an honorably discharged veteran of the U.S. military, and he's an intern in an intern camp in Arkansas because he's Japanese during the Second World War, and now the Japanese, instead of being our allies, are our enemies. Now, for a lot of these men that served, was there a fast track to citizenship? Was that something that was offered as an incentive? To, to protect any soldier who's going into the front lines, it was recognized that they should be a citizen of the United States, uh, mainly because if you were born in Austria or Croatia or Berlin uh, and you were captured by the German army, they had every right to force you to serve in their army because you were actually born in their country and they could consider you either a traitor or a new recruit for their army. So to protect them, the, uh, the, the U.S. Army realized they needed to, uh, to make them citizens as much as possible. Well, like many things in the, in the military, they dragged their feet and dragged their feet until just before a large number of, of divisions were getting ready to deploy to France in the spring of 1918. And the, the Congress came out and said, no enemy aliens serving in our armed forces can deploy to France. It was a crushing blow. The Ohio National Guard was getting ready to go. And like I mentioned earlier, a lot of their coal miners were born in Czechoslovakia, Romania, and Hungary. And now they were no longer eligible to serve. And the bigger problem was many of them were the NCOs the, uh, and the junior officers in these units. And so something had to be done. So fortunately, the, the Army was, was pragmatic enough. They went and got local circuit court judges to appear at the camps, and what they would do is they would bring in all the foreign-born soldiers and have naturalization ceremonies. If two people in the company, normally the first sergeant and the company commander, would attest to a man's loyal service, he would then be granted uh, American citizenship on the spot. And these were done almost in machine gun rapidity. They would march these guys in, make their sworn statements. The judge would swear them in as American citizens. And they would march them right over to the trains and as the trains were leaving to go to the East Coast to get on the ships. And uh, at Camp Taylor in, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, they still have a, a monument to what was called the Liberty Tree or the Naturalization Tree, where they naturalized 2,000 men in one day underneath that tree. And that became the, uh, the center spot until lightning hit the tree in the 60s. That was kind of like a, a historic landmark of this is the place where all these guys were naturalized before they went to war. It's an impressive performance, and most of these guys uh, did very well and were, were happy to be American citizens. But to follow that up, after the war was over, now they're American citizens, and, and they're very happy about that, most of them, because they'd come here to be citizens. Some of them made the mistake of going back to their home countries to live. And after five years, they lost their American citizenship and had to re reapply for it. Uh, particularly in Italy, there, the first American Legion post in Italy was set up just to help guys who had lost their citizenship accidentally regain it. And, and so that was one of the first jobs of the American Legion was to help these guys, number one, get their benefits and regain their citizenship. And I imagine it was probably a little harder after the war. Oh, m much. There was no quick fix. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, uh, uh, all bets were off. Now, here, and this was impressive that, that I was surprised because, you know, a lot of times we, we talk about the Army and being it's a monolith and doesn't understand things. Because these foreign soldiers had done so well, they'd actually established in 1919 classes so that when immigrants came to this country and they wanted to join the Army to get their citizenship, there was actually a path. And after a two-year enlistment, you, could, you were eligible for your citizenship, and the Army would train you in English and, and did a good job of that. It was really impressive. I, I was 
again, these were all things that were new to Pete and I as we, we staggered into this, this huge story without realizing how much of it was going on. It, my own wife's grandfather uh, was a guy named Rocco Steno, came to this country to be a stonecutter. He, he couldn't read or write in his own language. And next thing you know, he's at Camp Upton working. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 but that became his route to citizenship. And ironically, after the war was over, he came back to Binghamton, New York, and moved on to Lafayette Street. Well, what do you know? A street named for another foreign-born guy who'd served in the American Army in, in the Revolutionary War. So, so these guys are everywhere. And that's what Pete and I kept discovering as we're going through this process. Everyone we talked to had, had a relative that was, was born in another country. Up at the National Guard headquarters, I was talking to the Air Force Chief of Staff for the Virginia Air National Guard, and he pointed on the wall to his grandfather, Lawrence Jelvik, a, a, a Norwegian guy who had come to America, to North Dakota, Minnesota area, to get land and become a farmer. And next thing you know, he's in the Army. And he showed me a picture of, of his grandfather. And he was a machine gunner in the 89th Division. And here's his platoon. And half of his platoon appears to be Native American guys. And the other half appears to be Norwegian. So can you imagine some of the language complications of, of that group? But it was an excellent unit, and in fact, they were later chosen to be part of the occupation of Germany. We could not find a country that didn't send somebody to the American Army. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the contributions of some of these foreign-born doughboys? Anything that particularly stands out? Number one, because they wanted to be here. They saw this as a pathway to citizenship. They were very proud of their service. Uh, as the command historian for the, the Virginia National Guard, I'm lucky enough to be in contact with a lady whose father was a uh, was a guy named Salvatore Kalani, who shortened his name to Sam Callan, who served in the Virginia National Guard in France as a motorcycle rider, and till the day he died, still kept his helmet and his gas mask in his basement as a as proof of his service and, and his pride in being an American soldier. And he was just one of the, the the average guys who did his job, but there were 13 foreign-born soldiers who received the Medal of Honor. Uh, that's a pretty impressive number when you consider that only some 100 Medals of Honor were awarded during World War I, that 13 of them went to men from Finland, Croatia, Turkey, you know, Holland. It was really an impressive performance. Probably the most famous of all the foreign-born doughboys is the guy who wrote America the Beautiful and God Bless America, Irving Berlin. He was already famous before he got drafted. He was a Jewish guy from Russia who'd already written Alexander's Ragtime Band, had a dance craze going on, and then he gets drafted and he goes to Camp Upton on Long Island and spends the war as a, as a doughboy working in the States where he wrote God Bless America and Oh How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning and a lot of other famous songs. So Irving Berlin is, is probably one of the more famous doughboys. Less well-known but equally important was a guy named... Uh, Walter Kruger, who was born in Poland, who was the very first guy to become go from being a private to a four-star general, and actually commanded the occupation of Japan in World War II. And he was, you know, he German was his first language, and and so he uh, he had a thick accent his whole life, but it never stopped him from making it to a four-star general. One other guy that I really need to mention, I'd be wrong not to talk about, it, is uh, is a guy. He was born in Turkey. He was a Greek, born in Turkey who joined the New England National Guard, served in the Mexican border campaign, went to France, and was awarded the uh, the Medal of Honor for his heroism in combat. His name was George Dilboy. And what's significant about him is he, he actually died in, in, in being 
in the act of winning his his Medal of Honor, his father asked that he be buried back in his hometown in, in Turkey. And in 1922, a, a bunch of Turkish soldiers came in and desecrated Dilboy's grave. And this outraged the American president, who was Harding at the time, so much that he sent a destroyer to Turkey, had the sailors go ashore, gather up the remains of, of George Dilboy, brought him back to the States, and he, now he's buried in, uh, in Arlington. So that's kind of, he's like the, the, uh, the poster boy for New England National Guardsmen as being a Medal of Honor recipient. A couple other guys that are, are really kind of interesting. If we go back to, uh, to the registration, and I, again, we talk about the clerks that were uh, struggled with racial categories and religious categories. There was one guy who registered for the draft in Woodstown, New Jersey. His name was so difficult for the clerk that he actually registered him as number 31. So he's the only number 31. He actually, so there's no name, but he was from Bombay, India. Hopefully, uh, the, he eventually figured out what his real name was, but number 31 was interesting. And one other guy that, that's really kind of interesting to me, personally, again, as a, as a, as a National Guardsman, as a former Marine, as I was researching this, I came across a, a, a Danish-born soldier named Axel Christofferson, who was killed at Bella Wood in, in 1918. And as I was researching him, I realized that his grave was less than a mile from our National Guard headquarters up in Sandston, Virginia. So I went out to, uh, to, to find his grave, and he sits, he's in a small uh, national cemetery called Seven Pines. And when I got there, there was a Danish flag in front of his grave and a little pamphlet that someone had made and put into plastic to preserve it. And it was from his family back in Denmark that wow. 100 years later had still came and visited his grave, which I thought was pretty impressive. They haven't forgotten, and nor should we. And I think to, to kind of wrap this up, if I may, is as far as sheer numbers went, uh, Rochester, New York is a big city, and, and there's a lot of areas around it. During the war, 609 men and women from Rochester died in, in the war, whether from combat, from flu, or from other reasons. Think of that number, 609. Well, of that 609, 41 were born in Italy who died in combat. 13 more died from the flu, and two died from accidents in training. That's a total of 56 Italian-born men from, the, from Rochester. In other words, 12% of the men from Rochester who died in, in service were actually born in Italy. I mean, that's a, a, a huge Big number number. if you think about yes. what that means. Now, so in, in conclusion, what should we think of these guys? For the most part, they didn't consider themselves heroes. They, they just were doing their job. They wanted to be Americans. Their families back home were very, very, very active in raising money through war bonds to support them. It was, you know, it was a, an entire country's effort to support these guys. Now, for the guys that weren't foreign-born who were in the Army, some of them struggled with, with these guys. And probably the most famous doughboy of all was, was Sergeant York. Everybody knows the story of Sergeant York, conscientious objector, but went on to become a great soldier. Well, so Alvin York was, was actually in the 82nd Division. And at that time, a lot of the guys from his unit were taken out and sent to fill out other units who were going to France before them. And so Alvin York wrote in his diary, and, and I'm going to read this because I want to get it right. He, he wrote this in 1918 in February. They put me by some Greeks and Italians to sleep. I couldn't understand them, and they couldn't understand me. And I was the homesickest boy you've ever seen. So here's Alvin, a, a hill folk guy from Tennessee, and he's got all these guys around him. And he doesn't understand them. They don't understand him. And he can't understand why they can't shoot rifles. So he said, 
he wrote, Greeks and Italians come out on the shooting range and the boys from the big cities. They hadn't been used to handling guns, and sometimes at 100 yards they would not only miss the targets, they would even miss the hills on which the targets were placed. Now, as time went on, he noted that these guys spent more and more time practicing with their weapons than most of the other guys, so they got, he said, they stayed continuously on the rifle range, and they got so they could shoot well. He said, and eventually he said, you know, they became pretty good pals. It was a mixed platoon with the Greeks, the Italians, and New York Jews, and there were some Irish and one German. So finally, they're in France, and they're, they're fighting in, in, in the Meuse-Argonne. York wrote, these Greeks and Italians and New York Jews, they didn't want to lie around and do nothing. They would get on top of the trenches and get the Germans out. They were always asking, where was the war? They were always ready to go over the top in time of battle, almost too anxious to go over the top. Now, that's pretty powerful praise coming from one of America's greatest soldiers. And in fact, if you read the 82nd Division's history of the war, their conclusion was, an American is one who is willing to give his life for America. And that's a pretty good way to, to look at how these guys serve their country, their new country, and, uh, and did us all proud. Al, I think that's a great way to end the interview today. Can you let us know when your upcoming book will be released? I'm hoping it'll be out in the spring of 2018, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. I, it's a, a fascinating So We haven't even talked about the women from foreign countries, so uh, we'll save that for the book. Definitely. All right, so Many Roads Traveled, America's Foreign-Born Doughboys by author Al Barnes should be available in spring of 2018. Yes, ma'am. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.